Amen. Well, it's good to see you today. We are continuing in our series on the little guys. We're dealing with the shortest books in the New Testament, and today we're in Tukent John, Second John 2, 2 John, I guess is how I should say that. 2 John, if you're using the Bible in front of you, it's on page 1025, and we encourage you to turn there and look uh, at that passage with us. It's between first and second John, first and third John, I mean, right before Jude and the Revelation. Second John is the shortest book in the whole Bible. The shortest book is third John. It's an original word count, it only has 219 words. Second John comes in at 245 words, and Philemon, which Pastor Kevin looked at with us last week, is real long-winded at 335 words. He just didn't know when to stop, huh? And we look at these little bitty books and we go, well, what's, what, what do we have those in there for? But we have them there because God is speaking to us through them. They are short messages, but they are powerful messages. And um, as, we, as we avail ourselves to them as the Word of God, which they are, they continue to bring transformation of who we are. So what we want to do, like we did last week, let's just read that whole uh, book. It's 13 verses, and then we're going to dive into it. Okay, let's look there in verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greetings. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I'd rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. John wrote these last three epistles toward the end of his life. In fact, there are some who argue that the gospel of John was written at the end of his life in answer to a heresy that was going around the church. We still have it today. It goes by different names, but same old hash, just cooked a little bit different. you know. And he, has, he alludes to this... Um, heresy even in these first couple of verses and then deals with it down in the body of the the book and let's let's start there in verses one through three let's start with just the um, greeting and salutation look there in verse one it says grace the, the elder to the elect lady and her children whom i love in truth and not only i but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever 
This book is addressed to a woman. We don't know exactly what woman it is. There are some who argue her name is one of these early words in the first verse. That's probably doubtful. But she probably lived in Ephesus and probably had a church meeting in her home, at least a community group. She at least led a community group in her home. And she had folks that were in that community group. It's addressed to the elect lady and her children, whether this is talking to about her physical children or those who were in the church that met in her home. We're not certain. It might be figurative of those who met in her home. But even in these two verses, these first verses, he is dealing with a heresy that is starting to come in. Look there in verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. The heresy stated that Jesus was not God in the flesh, that he was just a man. At best, he was an uh, enlightened man, uh, maybe a man inhabited by a particular spirit from God, but not necessarily God. And he addresses that in that very, that verse three right there when he says, Jesus Christ, the Father, Son. The only time he ever used that term to describe Jesus, but he's already, this is the opening salvo across the bow of the ship. We're coming after this heresy. He deals with it in this book. He deals with it all the way through the Gospel of John. And he starts this by pronouncing a blessing over this unnamed woman and those who are he refers to as children. Look at what he says. He says, grace, mercy, and peace be with us. I like what one commentator said. He puts grace first to cover men's sins, mercy to cover their miseries. you got to deal with grace first to get rid of the sin so that you can get rid of the the, the the misery that comes from sin, and the result of that, the natural outflowing of grace and mercy is going to be peace. Friends, if you don't have peace in your life, if you don't have peace in your spirit, in your relationship with Jesus, can I tell you, peace is available, but it only comes after grace and mercy have been applied to your life. Peace is always the result. We go looking for peace. We go looking for peace in all kinds of distractions and addictions and things to get us away from our problems, but all we're doing is making the problems worse. Amen? <laughs> And what God says is, there is peace that's available, but it's always the result of our ongoing and growing relationship with Him. He tells us in Philippians 4 how to get there. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, what will be the result of that? Verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Peace is the result of a right relationship with God. And if you're here this morning and you don't have peace in your life, could I, could I encourage you, the only way that you're going to find peace is by getting your relationship right with the Father through the person of Jesus Christ. Peace flows out of our relationship with Him. He tells us in Colossians 3, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Now, let's look at that verse backwards. If you don't have peace ruling in your heart, who, who's not in charge? It, it, it says, let the peace of Christ rule. If I don't have peace there, then Jesus isn't ruling in some area of my life. And all of us have experienced this. This is one of the ways that God directs us. He leads us into his will is that there is peace that attends those decisions. And when we don't have that peace attending that decision, that's when we stay up late at night wondering, oh no, what am I getting myself into? Is that the right person to be hanging out with? Do I really want to marry them? Do I want to buy that car? Do I want to live in that town? Do I want to hold that job? When there's not peace in attendance with those decisions, that's God trying to get our attention. Listen, we need to talk about this a little bit more. His invitation is to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Now that 
that passage, it's interesting in where it is found. It's sandwiched between two verses, as all verses are, except the last one in any book. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, that was, I know, I know. You're going to go home today and, wow, that was so deep. Anyway, <laughs> Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Verse 14, how do we get there? Above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You've got to walk in right relationship with others the best of our ability as much as is in us walk in right relationship and then the other piece of bread between the meat of let the peace of god rule is verse 16 let the word of christ dwell in you richly friends when you when you have the word of christ when you have the bible resting deep in your spirit the written word which is the breath of the living word when you allow god's word the bible to rest deep in your spirit the result of that is going to be peace in your life if you need more peace, friends, you need more Jesus. Now look at what he says there in verse 4. I think this is really cool. He says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. Now there's a question, there's debate, there's debate about everything. But there's debate about, is this talking about her physical children or the people that she has charge of in this uh, community group, this church that meets in her home? Really doesn't matter, because I think it's kind of comical that no matter the age... It's always an exciting thing when the preacher's kids are following Jesus. You know, they say cobbler's kids go barefoot and preacher's kids go to Gehenna. But um, <laughs> And how many times do you find yourself surprised, delighted, shocked that the preacher's kids love Jesus? It, it delights me that mine love Jesus, my kids love Jesus, they love me. That's a pretty good deal. I'm okay with that. And how many times do preachers lament about the people in their church that just don't seem to get it? We're preaching to them and they're just not hearing it. Well, there's a breakdown somewhere. And friends, whether it's talking about her physical children or the congregants in the church, it's a, it's a tragedy when the relationship of love between us and the Father doesn't translate to the next generation. And we have such a blessing in this house that this house is full of people who get it. They just, you, you people are the ones doing the work. We're just standing here cheerleading. Where are my pom-poms? I left them here somewhere. That's all we're doing. We're equipping you and encouraging you to get the work done. You're the ones doing the work. And what a blessing this house is. Amen? And friends, if this is talking about preacher's kids, let me tell you what. Preacher's kids love Jesus for the same reason your kids love Jesus. And that's because they have seen honesty at home and the gospel lived out in front of them. And even then, there are plenty who miss it. What a sad tragedy. Preacher's kids don't have access to some super secret inside information, you know, that makes it so that they're going to love Jesus more than your kids. In fact, if anything, preacher's kids have a temptation to bitterness and offense that a lot of other folks' kids don't have because they see how the preacher's family gets treated in so many places. Let me tell you something about kids. My kids do not want to be introduced as, you know, this is the pastor's kids. They're, they're, grown, they're grown adults. They don't want to be introduced as, in, in terms of their mommy and daddy. They want to be accepted and rejected, loved or hated in terms of who they are as individuals. They are free, moral, and sometimes amoral individuals who have made or not made the decision to follow Jesus on their own. And everybody wants to be received in terms of who they are. Amen? Nobody wants to be introduced as, in terms of how they're this is so-and-so and they're the, they're the in-laws of the preacher, you know, so we have to treat them differently. The reality is, 
My kids wanted the blue hair and the piercings, and they occasionally blew things up, which really irritated me, because I'd find out about it after they blew it up, and I'd have liked to have seen it. <laughs> and we just decided there's, there's some battles that just aren't worth the fight. The reality is the cops talk to my kids, sometimes kindly, sometimes a little bit sternly, of the times that I've heard about. And you know what? It just wasn't the end of the world. It just wasn't. We don't introduce the kids in terms of the parents. We let them be their own people. And here's your reality. Jared's kids are going to do something stupid. <laughs> and they should not be held to a different standard than anybody else's kids because Jared's kids are going to be stupid and Sean's kids are going to do something. And Jason and Josh and everybody's kids, all God's children are going to do something stupid. Of course, when you got one named Cal or Wyatt, they get in a little bit extra, you know, they get a little pass there. You got a name like that, okay, you get a pass. But friends, anybody that's raised kids, anybody that's done the hard work of raising kids and carried the weight of that on your heart, and they, those parents still love Jesus and they hadn't killed one of them, we need to be willing to be merciful every now and then. That they're doing things a little bit differently than how you did it. I really like that verse. Because anytime you see somebody's kids or somebody's congregants loving Jesus, it is, verse 4, a reason to greatly rejoice to find some of your children walking in the truth. Because this is what we were commanded to do by the Father. Now in verse 5, he starts in on the first of two main themes in this book. The two main themes are the importance of love in verses 5 and 6, and then the dangers of false doctrine in verses 7 through 11. So let's look at those two real quickly here. The important, first off, the importance of love, verses 5 and 6. Look at what it says. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. You know what's interesting? John's writing this toward the end of the first century. It's been 60-some-odd years since Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And here it is 60-some years later, and he can't get away from that one message that Jesus gave. You ever heard a message that just changed your life? It just it, it sinks. It keeps digging at you for years, years, sometimes a lifetime. I heard a message 27 years ago by a guy named Miles Monroe on purpose. changed my life. You ever see those TV preachers that say, and if you want to receive this and stand up in your living room and we're going to pray right now, I've stood up in my living room one time. It was on that message right there. Changed my life. Heard a message prior to that by a guy named Vance Havner, uh, Home Before Dark. Man, it just keeps digging at you, you know, just keeps ministering. And here's 60 years later, 60 years after the, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, John is still being dug on by the message that Jesus gave that changed his life and would not let him go, and that is that God loves us. John couldn't get away from it. In fact, by the time he writes his gospel, at the end of the first century, he uses the word love more than the other three gospels combined. The word that deals with God's love, Matthew, Mark, and Luke use it 28 times. John uses it 43 the word that deals with loving one another, just getting along, just tolerating their odors. Matthew, Mark, and Luke deal, use it eight times. John uses it 13. He cannot get away from this message that Jesus gave of love one another. And he looked, he looked there in verse 5. I'm not writing you anything new. It's not as though I were writing you a new commandment. 
It's the one we've had from the beginning. This isn't anything new. We don't need some new twist on the gospel to really impress people and watch all my mental gymnastics here to prove how brilliant I really am. No, it's just the simplicity of the gospel. God loves us so much, he sent Jesus to die for our sins. Wow. Remember when I was 17 years old? The middle is Jesus movement was winding down, you know, and Jesus movement is Jesus coming back anytime and you better be ready, you know. Second coming. So we were at my grandparents' house. My mom's mom and dad, and grandpa was already 80 some by then. And, and so I was excited about the second coming, you know, I can't get enough of this. So I went to grandpa. Grandpa, when do you think Jesus is coming? And he just kind of touched his teeth there a couple of times and said, Well, he'd been preaching a long time by then. He said, I've decided that. The most important message that we can give is John 3.16, that God loves us and just point people to Jesus and the love of God in Jesus. And I thought, well, that's pretty boring. <laughs> well, it's been more than a week and a half since then. And the older I get, the more I realize there's a lot of wisdom in that. And the message of the love that God showed to us in Jesus would not let John go. <laughs> And all he's doing, all he's doing, he's just reminding them. He's just setting them, uh, as, as Peter said in 2 Peter 1, I'm just putting you in remembrance, just reminding you of what you already know and really what you're already doing. You're living it out. And here it is, verse 5, love one another. Verse 6, this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. You show your love to the Father by, by the simple act of walking according to his commandment. And that's what Jesus said all the way back in John 14. If you love me, what are you going to do? You will keep my commandments. You will do it. And here it is 60 years later, and John has the same message. Now listen, it doesn't mean you have to live with them. doesn't mean you have to agree with them. doesn't mean you have to go to the same church with them. In fact, Abraham and Lot, in order to maintain their relationship, in order to maintain love between them, Abraham in Genesis 13 looked at Lot and said, you know, we have a lot of sheep between us and your sheep boys and my sheep boys are getting on each other's nerves. Your, your sheepies are eating our grass and verse vice. We, we don't want contention between us. He looked at Lot and said, let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we're, we're kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right and I'll go to the left. You realize Abraham and Lot went different directions so that they could maintain relationship. It's kind of like, you know, I recognize God has a calling and gifting on your life, and you're called over there, good. You go do it. I'm over here. We're working different corners of the vineyard, but it's the same vineyard, and we're going to bless each other in the doing of it. So John brings them back to the same message that they've heard from time immemorial, and that is the importance of love. And he does it for a very specific reason. Look there in verse 7. It says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. 
So the second part of this, first off, we have the importance of love. The second is the dangers of false doctrine. There was a doctrine going around in that day, which it had all kinds of variant forms and still going around today. It's the same, like I said, same hash, just cooked a little bit different. And it's a doctrine that's called Gnosticism. Now, there are a few different branches of Gnosticism. One of them stated that God is so high and man is so low, and that chasm between is so great that God could never span that chasm and come in and experience our reality. And so what he did, he touched this being that was just a little bit lower than him and had that being touch a being that was a little bit lower than him and a little bit lower and a little bit lower. And thousands of beings later, the bottom being was this dude named Christ. He wasn't fully God because he's way down the line, and he wasn't fully man because he's just up a little bit from us. And he brought us a really nice message. That's one form of Gnosticism. Both of them teach that Jesus was not God in the flesh. The second form of it, another form rather, said that, that Christ was this spirit, kind of like a spook, you know, and came and inhabited this, this dude named Jesus. And stayed in him for all those years and did all kinds of great things until things started going south. And Christ said, oh, this isn't good. He knew he was heading to the cross, and so Christ left abandoned this Jesus guy and left the poor smug Jesus to go to the cross for all the things that Christ had done. That Jesus wasn't really God in the flesh. This is Gnosticism. And John says, this is a lie. I want you to know this is a lie. And then he begins to talk with us about it. He says in verse 7, many deceivers have gone out into the world. These do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. And friends, when you look in John's gospel, he makes it very clear, I have seen this thing. I have, I have handled it. I have experienced it. I've heard it. I've lived with it. It says in John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld his glory. We've, we've seen him. The one is the, the only begotten of the Father. Turn just a couple of pages over. 1 John 1, at the beginning of 1 John, he deals with this same heresy. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. I'm telling you, we saw it. And in the writing of his gospel to combat this heresy that was invading the church, John made it very clear in the very first verse, I'm coming after this thing. We're going after it with both barrels. It's not going to survive this, this gospel, and here it is. In John 1, chapter 1, there are three clauses in that verse. And he talks to us about the Word. He tells us three things about the Word. First off, it says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word never had a point in time origin. It always existed. There was always the Word. Because in the beginning was the Word. That just tells us that it existed. But the second clause tells us where it existed. What does it say? And the Word was with God. Now, that word with means opposed to facing one another, not fighting one another, but facing one another. It means personality. It means distinction from. But that it's in the presence of God, okay, there's got to be something holy there because no flesh is going to glory in his presence. But he, the word could be way down low and God way up high, but the third clause separate, ends that for us when it says the word in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word, ah, and it's not down here. Now they're face to face. 
And one of the early creeds said they're the same in substance, substance, whatever the Father stands on that makes him God, the Son stands on, they're the same substance. They both have the same essence of God. And as we follow the teaching of the Trinity all the way through the Bible, what makes the Father God, makes the Son God, makes the Holy Spirit God, and there's only one God. <laughs> and when you understand that, write a book and get really rich. But friends, John wants us to know, I'm telling you, the Word has always, in the presence of the Father, been God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I bumped into him and I heard him speak. And one time he's talking with his mouth full and he spit food on me. But it's the Word. It's God in human form. In the Gospel of John, chapter 20, Jesus reminds us that he's flesh also because he says, here, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Don't disbelieve, but believe. And friends, that spirit that would teach that Jesus did not come in the flesh is the very essence of what it means to be the Antichrist. It says in verse 7, it is the deceiver. And the Antichrist. So, what should our response to this be? If Jesus is God in the flesh, what should our response to this be in this heresy that's coming and trying to destroy that truth? Two things. First one's in verse 8, second one's in verse 10. Our first response in verse 8 watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Watch yourself. Because, friends, this, this is serious business. And, you know, the devil really does seek who he can devour. He came as a thief to destroy, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He doesn't come so that you can have a good evening. He's out to ruin your day. And so John tells us, I want you to watch yourself. Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 10, if anybody thinks he stands, you better take heed lest he fall. And friends, before we get so sure about how right we are and how wrong everybody else is, we might ought to relax just a little bit. You better check yourself before you wreck yourself. Because <laughs> you're not the only one. You're not, you're not the only one who's right. And there's nothing quite as offensive as a Christian who thinks they know everything. You know, one thing about learning and education, proper learning, the more you learn, the more you learn how much there is to learn. The more you learn, the more you learn how stupid you really are, how ignorant you are. Ignorant can be fixed. Stupid's all the way to the bone, but ignorant can be fixed. <laughs> and Jesus said the temptation to be led astray, the temptation that requires us to watch ourselves is so strong. Matthew 24, the, for false Christs and prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Friends, this is serious business that we're dealing with. And the people who stick with the gospel are the ones who, by their sticking with it, prove that they are Christians. <laughs> that we stick with it proves we're one of them. But it's so easy to be deceived, and so he tells us in verse 8, watch yourselves. Secondly, he tells us in verse 10, if anyone comes to you, what should be our response to this heresy? If anybody comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Did you know that when you, that when you encourage someone in sin, you are taking part in their sin? That's what it said in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, don't take part in their sins. 
We don't take part in them and we don't encourage them. We don't approve of it, according to Romans 1.32. Don't give approval to those who practice it. And friends, if you know a Christian brother or sister who is teetering on the edge of, of going into foolishness, that the Bible says do not do that, don't encourage them, don't say it's okay, don't say, well, this one instance, it'll be all right. You go up to them, and we're going to look at Jude here in a few weeks, and Jude 23 says you go up to them and you snatch them as grabbing them out of the fire. You help them. You put your arm around their shoulders. We're not, we're not falling for this. We're going to do this thing together. And so as we watch ourselves in verse 8, and as we refuse to condone the spread of false doctrine in verse 10 and 11, there's a benefit that comes from that in verse 9. Look at what it says. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Friends, the benefit, the benefit of watching ourselves, the benefit of maintaining right doctrine, of doing our dead level best to find out what the Bible says and allowing it to be applied to our lives, the benefit of that is we gain the Father and the Son. And those who go ahead are the ones the ones the Go beyond the gospel, outside of the gospel. All a little bit, I know a little bit more than the Bible does. And they return to the old lifestyle. You know, 2 Peter 2 says that the sow that was washed returns to her wallowing in the mire, and the dog returns to his vomit. You know why the pig goes back to the mud and the dog goes back to the vomit? Because their essential nature was never changed. They, 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 st they still are the pig. They still are the dog. But friends, when you get saved, when you... When you allow Jesus to do a transforming work in your life that begins the process of real life transformation, ongoing change of who we are into who he is, when we get saved, the Bible says that the proof of that is going to be that we're going to make it through to the end. And in doing so, we will have the Father and the Son. And friends, the reason that Jesus came was to get us back into the presence of the Father. How many of you feel like you're in trouble most of the time? How many of you lay down at night and go, well, what am I going to get whapped for tomorrow? Friends, Jesus came to take that shame, to take that broken relationship with the Father away. Because every one of us, every one of us have, like Adam and Eve, looked at Jesus and looked at the fruit of our own choice. And every one of us went, hmm, and hmm, and chose, mm -mm. we've all rejected Jesus. We have all chosen our own way. And in doing that, we stepped over a line of sin and turned around and began to build a wall between us and God of, of sin to separate us from him, that, that wall of sin that, that makes it so that we can't get back to him. And his desire, the reason he created us, was so he could have fellowship with us. He just wanted to visit with us. He, he wanted to have a people to be with. And we looked at him and said, no, we'd rather go our own way. And to deal with that wall, he said, payment has to be made. And he sent Jesus, who made the payment to have that wall torn down. And that payment was his death on the cross. All of that happened so that we could get back into the presence of the Father. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, it is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses 
against them. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made Jesus, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And friends, the price to have that wall of sin taken down has been paid in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we look at that and go, well, goody, goody, you know, the wall's gone. So everything's taken care of. Everything's great. No, that's half the transaction. Jesus has done his half of the transaction. And now he looks at us and says, now you have something on your side of this thing you got to do. And that is, you have to give your life to me. He looks at us and says, I gave you my life. Now, in response, I demand that you give me your life. And we can sit back and say, well, you know, I think Jesus is a really good guy. A lot of really good things to say. Friends, the false teacher that John is warning against could very probably have said much the same thing. This isn't a question of the good guyedness of Jesus. Think he's a nice doobie? Oh, you're okay. No. Who is he? John says he is God who came in human form and lived this thing out in front of us and died a real death and was buried in a real grave and was raised back to life as proof that he is God by the power of the Father, and now he lives eternally at the right hand of the Father. What are you going to do with him? And the, the invitation, the command of God is that you receive Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord. Now look, how do we do that? It says in Romans 10, 9, it says, If we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Now, how many of you want to be saved? We want to be saved. We want to miss hell and make heaven. We want to, want to live in a relationship with God. We want the saved part. How do we get there? Saved is at the end of that verse. Saved is number three. In order to get to saved, you've got to do numbers one and two. And the first one is, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Lord. And he is Lord. Friends, we're all going to be forced to confess it one day. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and that will bring glory to the Father. But his, his request for you right now, his invitation for you right now, if you've never done it, is would you say that Jesus is your Lord? Would you confess that he is your Lord, that you will do what he tells you to do, that what you own belongs to him, who you live with belongs to him, how you conduct yourself is your desire to represent him? Are you willing to say he's your Lord? And secondly, you've got to believe that God's raised him from the dead, that this Jesus was so holy, so righteous, that the eternal God, to prove the righteousness of Jesus, raised him from the dead. He's God. If you're willing to do those two things, it says you will be saved. And friends, if you've never done that, could I encourage you, before you leave here today, talk with us. Talk with us about how you can become a Christian. Let us share with you what God's Word, the Bible, has to say about how you can move from a place of separation from God to a place of fellowship with Him, fellowship with the Father because of the Son. If you abide in the truth, you have the Father and the Son. Wow. Would you be willing to just talk with us and say, ask, what does the Bible say about how I can become a Christian? And then John closes couple of verses here, verses 12 and 13. Final desire, stating his desire to see this godly woman. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink, 
Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Sends a blessing to a woman, sends a greeting from a woman. It's just a really interesting book. But the question which remains is this. Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? If not, friends, it is as simple and as eternal as this. That we just come to him in honesty and say, you know, I did it. I, I did it. <laughs> I, I chose myself over you. I chose my sin over your righteousness. I saw that it was your law, and I said, I don't care. I did it. I broke your law. And you know what? I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I did that. I'm sorry that I was an offense to a holy God. Would you please forgive me? I believe that the death Jesus died on the cross was to take care of my sins. And in response to that gift, I want to say thank you and give you my life in return. I confess Jesus is my Lord. I believe that God raised him from the dead. And because of that, I have the Father and the Son. Wow. If you'd like to know more about how you can become a Christian, we have folks who'd be glad to talk with you. Tina's in the back. Stand up. Jared's right here. Travis is right here. Sam's over here. you got to stand up real quick. Let them see where you are. Anybody else that's willing to talk, share the gospel, just stand. These people will be glad to talk with you. You can sit down now after the service. Good, good, good. We have a lot of folks who will be glad to talk with you. Don't, don't hesitate to avail yourself to God's offer of salvation to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love for us. God, thank you that before we knew we had a problem, you already had fixed it. You had already offered a solution in the person of Jesus Christ, God, God in the flesh. Now, Father, we got to admit, we don't understand all this. This is, this is beyond our little computers to comprehend. But Father, that you loved us, that you wanted our fellowship to the extent of being willing to send Jesus to bring us home. How can we ever say thank you enough? Except to say, okay, here's my life. I confess Jesus is my Lord. I believe that God raised him from the dead. And God, I receive your free salvation. Now, Father, for those of us who are Christians, I want to ask that we've got to be diligent in this thing. Would you please give us wisdom to watch ourselves? Just be careful who we're encouraging, supporting, what kind of foolishness we're encouraging other believers towards. And Father, when we see somebody teetering on the edge, would you please give us grace to go put an arm around their shoulder and say, not, not without me, we're not doing this. Snatch them, as it were, from the Father, thank you so much that you loved us enough to take down that wall, invite us into your presence, and welcome us as your cherished possession. God be glorified in Jesus.